0: Welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica. I am so glad that you're here with me today. I'm going to start out by apologizing again for being late. Here I am. I'm running late again this week, and I apologize. But hey, at least this time, I am getting it to you on Tuesday instead of Thursday. I'm going to tell you guys, I'm a one man band this week. I don't know how. How all you single parents out there do it. Cause my husband and I tag team all the time and he's been gone since this past Friday. So I am being single mom just for the week. And let me tell you, it's kicking my butt. So all of you single parents out there, y'all rock for getting it all done and taking care of all of it, because as you can see. I'm not handling my business. I'm running late. So I apologize. But hopefully after this week, he'll be back and I'll have my act together and we'll be back on time. So forgive me. But we are going to finish talking about the unsolved murders in Fort Worth. And we're also going to talk about the two remaining victims. Some of the convicted killers who were in the area at the time and one of the main suspects. Who, in my opinion, makes the most sense of all of the killers who were in the area at the time. But you can make your own decisions after you listen. I also want to say that there is another podcast called Still. And they really did a deep dive into all of these murders. And really talked about the one suspected killer who they also believe was responsible for these women's murders. And it's really good. And, and I listened to every bit of it. They interview anyone that was willing to speak with them about these women, about Catherine Davis, about Cindy Heller, about, um, Angela Ewert, Sarah Koshka and Terry McAdams. They speak with their family members and friends, people who knew them and were close to them. And just to hear their those people talk about them, it really brings these women to life. And just, I don't know, it really hits home that here we are in 2024 and their loved ones still don't know who's responsible for their murders. And some of them had parents that passed away and they still don't know what happened. And if you have time or you're interested, give it a listen, it's it's really good. I wanna do a little recap before we talk about the next two victims. If you haven't listened to the other two episodes, you should go back and listen to Sarah Koshka's episode and then the episode with Katherine Davis and Cindy Heller's stories first. It will make more sense and give you more background. But here's a little recap. In September of 1984, Catherine Davis went missing after neighbors heard her having a loud argument with a man. An hour after they saw the man leave her apartment and drive away in her car, Catherine's apartment was gutted by fire. Her car was found two days later, abandoned in an apartment complex parking lot with a flat tire, dirt and grass covering the underneath of the car, and human blood smeared on the door handle and on some coat hangers that were found in a pile of clothes in the backseat of Catherine's car. Catherine's remains were found January 23rd, 1985. On October 22nd, 1984, about one month after Catherine went missing, Cindy Heller pulled over to help another woman having car trouble on the side of the road near Hewland Mall. She was on her way home from a dance class and it was 9.30 p.m. The woman was unable to reach her friends, so Cindy offered to sit with her at the bar at the beginning Bennigan's Restaurant by the Hewlett Mall. They visited for about two hours and then Cindy decided to go home. She offered to leave a note on the door of the apartment of the woman's friends to let them know where she was. No one saw Cindy Heller again after she left the Bennigan's restaurant around 11.30 p.m. Her remains were discovered by two children in a small pond on the Texas Christian University campus on January 5th, 1985. I know I've said it in each episode, but women were scared. They were changing their schedules so they didn't have to be out alone at night. They were taking self-defense classes and buying guns and mace. A task force was investigating the murders, but police had no leads. And the suspects they had arrested were all cleared. Angela Ewert was 21 years old. She had just gotten a new job as a programmer at one of Fort Worth's most popular radio stations, K-E-G-L. Things were going really well for the sweet, outgoing girl. She had recently bought a new car, a 1984 Mercury Topaz, to celebrate the new job she had gotten, and she was engaged. On December 10, 1984, Angela and her fiancé had gone to have her new engagement ring sized. He was going to present it to her at Christmas. She was very excited. The couple had gone back to Angela's future in-laws house in the Wedgwood neighborhood of Southwest Fort Worth after they had been shopping. It was around 1130 PM and Angela was tired and not feeling the best. And she was ready to go home. She lived about 20 minutes away with her parents and still had to stop for gas. Usually her fiance would follow her home in his car and then turn around and drive back home. But he was low on gas and Angela did not want to wait for him to drive to a grocery store to cash a check so he could buy gasoline she told him not to worry about it she just wanted to head home for all of you out there listening who weren't alive in the 80s it probably sounds weird that he was going to cash a check at a grocery store for gas but that was pretty standard at the time ATM machines weren't on every corner and in most convenience stores like they are now. Most people still had to go into an actual bank and speak to a teller or go cash a check at a grocery store to actually get cash. People still wrote checks to pay their bills and sent them in the mail. Plus, You didn't pay at the pump with a debit or credit card. I mean, most people hardly even carry cash anymore. I know I always have cash on me, and my friends are always surprised because most people don't. They just have plastic. And so you pumped your gas, and then you had to walk inside, tell the cashier which pump you used, and pay them in person. And most places only wanted cash. I have to say, when I think about it, I really shouldn't complain. When I have to stop for gas now in 2024, I complain about it all the time and talk about how it takes so much time and it's such a pain in the rear. But let's be honest, it's a way simpler process now than it was in the 80s. And I was a kid. I wasn't even driving, but I remember having to stop and do all the things. Angela left her fiance's house and stopped at a 7-Eleven one block from where Sarah Koshka would go missing in three weeks. Remember, Sarah had tried to visit some friends at an apartment at an apartment complex called the Wedgwood Apartment Complex. but those friends weren't home. and Angela Ewart was in the Wedgwood area herself. Angela pumped her gas and then walked inside to pay the cashier. When she walked back to her car, she didn't notice that someone had stuck a pocket knife into one of her back tires. I wondered as I have listened to the podcast about these women, read articles, I feel so much empathy for Angela Ewert's fiance because he usually followed her home and then drove back. And don't you know that that has haunted him for his whole life? I'm sure he's had such guilt. And it's not his fault that some horrible crazed person decided to target Angela. But I just, as I listened, I just thought of him and thought, like I said, just had so much empathy for him. Angela pulled back out onto the road and started for home. It didn't take long for her to figure out that she had a flat tire. You know, that familiar, if you've ever had a flat tire, that familiar womp, womp, womp sound as it goes flat and flops around. She pulled over onto the side of Loop 830 and was going to wait. But passers by would later report that they saw the five foot nine blonde haired former beauty queen on the side of the road and a blue truck had pulled in behind her on the shoulder. Now, all these people said they assumed that this person was a good Samaritan and they were going to change her tire and that the young lady would be on her way. But it was the last time that anyone would see Angela Ewart alive. When Angela didn't arrive home, her father, Gary Ewart, called her fiancé to find out where she was. Angela's fiancé told Gary that she had left a long time ago. Both men were immediately concerned and called the police to report Angela missing. Early the next morning, Angela's car, the new Mercury, was found on the side of Loop 830 30, just a few miles from the 7-Eleven. It was just about six miles. So she didn't make it far. Now, this is the interesting part. Her car was locked and the keys in her purse were gone and someone had changed that flat tire and put it in the trunk of her car. So someone went to a lot of trouble to make Angela feel secure and making her think that she was going to go home that night. A broken pocket knife was lying on the ground next to the car, and the broken blade was found in the tire that was in her trunk. So obviously, someone had picked her out, targeted her, and then followed her. Police searched the surrounding areas, but there were no signs of Angela. Her family and friends were adamant that she would not have left with a stranger. It was theorized at one point that maybe her assailant had lured her into the warm cab of the truck because it was chilly that night. Maybe they had said, don't stand out here in the cold. Go wait in the, in the cab of the truck. You'll be warm there. And then when I'm done, you can come get in your car and be on your way. It's a way to get her in there. And then I listened on the still podcast and they said, but how would you keep her in the truck? Why wouldn't she just jump out? But let's think about other serial killers. We know, um, you know, a lot of them, when they use their cars to abduct, people would take the inside door handles off so that their victims could not get out. And, you know, when you get in a car, you're not automatically looking for the way out until you need to get out. So it's possible that it was something like that. And Angela didn't notice until it was too late. Whatever happened, there were no signs of a struggle and there were no clues to suggest where Angela might have gone. Now, two months later, Angela's purse was found in a dry creek bed near Hewlin Mall. Remember, that's the same place Cindy Heller had sat and had a drink with a woman that she was trying to help the night that she went missing. There were no fingerprints. There was nothing. No footprints anything to give police any leads. And that was the thing. Whoever this was, was really good at what they were doing. They weren't leaving any evidence behind to help them figure out who it was. Seven months after Angela's disappearance, there were still no signs of her. Her family held a memorial service to celebrate her life. And at that point, they felt like it was a very big possibility that Angela Was not alive anymore so they did want to celebrate her but a lot of it was that they were hoping that if they held this memorial service for her it would spark a memory from someone anyone that might lead to some answers but nothing new was learned several hundred people attended the memorial service and all of them had wonderful things to say about Angela. All of her former classmates talked about what a sweet, kind person she was. That's the other thing. These women, besides the fact that they were all young, and beautiful, and very ambitious. Everyone talks about how kind they were, how gracious they were, how they like to help people. And more than one family member said that they were afraid that this kindness was what led to them being targeted because they did care about people. And so it would make them easy to lure in. It would take nine years for Angela's remains to be found. On August eleventh, 1993, Angela's skeletal remains were found in a trash-strown field in a rural area of southern Fort Worth. The medical examiner was unable to determine a cause of death at that point. Now, after Sarah Koshka was found New Year's Day 1985, police were still searching for the other three women. Remember, at this point, Katherine Davis and Cindy Heller had not been found. They wouldn't be found until January. Cindy was found first and then Katherine. And of course, as I just said, Angela wouldn't be found until 1993. <laughs> 22 year old Terry McAdams was new to the Fort Worth area. She'd only been living in Arlington for a few months. Katherine Davis had just gone missing when Terry McAdams moved to town. The news worried her, and she sent newspaper clippings home to her mother and talked about how scared she was about the missing women. Now Arlington is only 16 miles from Fort Worth, so Terry McAdams had a legitimate reason to be concerned about what was happening so close by in Fort Worth. Terry had transferred from Little Rock, Arkansas to the University of Texas in Arlington to be near her boyfriend, her junior year in college, when he moved to Texas for his new sales job. By January of 1985, the couple were engaged and Terry was sporting a $5,000 engagement ring, y'all. A $5,000 engagement ring is a big deal in today's money. Can you imagine what a ring in 1985 that cost $5,000 looked like? It had to be a stunner. I'm sure it caught everyone's eye. The couple were making plans to get married in December. Now, everyone who knew Terry said that she was not only beautiful, but she was funny and she loved to get to know people. She was a standout in a crowd and people always took notice of her when she was around. And part of it was, again, her genuine like of people. She liked to talk to people. She liked to hear about their lives. She was truly interested in what people had to say. When Terry first moved to Arlington, she got a retail sales job. It, you know, was easy to work and fit the hours in with her college schedule. But the odd It had odd hours, any of you who've ever worked retail know you work nights, you work weekends, you go in early. It, a lot of times you might close the store up on your own. If you're a woman and you're scared of being on your own, it's not always the best of hours and she was frequently out late because of her job. This concerned Terry because of all of the women who were going missing, so like many women in the area, she ar- rearranged her lifestyle to try to be safer. Terry got a job at the financial aid office at UT Arlington, and with her new work schedule, she was home before dark, and this made her feel safer. So by February of 1985, she'd started to relax a little and wasn't worrying quite as much. On the afternoon of February 13th, 1985, Terry got off work at 4 p.m. And went to the grocery store to pick up everything she needed to make her fiance a surprise for valentine's day he was on a work trip out of town so she had plenty of time terry and her fiance lived in the same apartment complex but they both had keys to each other's apartments after she ran her errands she took the groceries to his apartment so she could get everything ready he was going to be home the next day for valentine's day now, Terry was planning to bake a cake, so it made sense for her to make it at his apartment instead of hers. She turned the TV on as she started prepping to bake. The news was on, and Angela E. Wert's murder was probably being talked about at that point. It was right there in that time frame. As she was getting prepped, her sister called, and they talked about Terry's wedding plans, and they ended their conversation with their usual, I love you. And then Terry went back to working on her Valentine's day surprise for a fiance, but unbeknownst to Terry, she was being watched. She thought that she was safe in her apartment. All the other women had been out well after dark and on their own. They weren't safely locked inside their homes. Terry should have been okay, but the killer had decided to change tactics. It was well known that police were everywhere and on guard for someone prowling the streets for women who were out on their own and it wasn't just regular patrol officers it was well known at that point that there were officers working undercover as well so investigators speculated that the killer knew he would need to evolve so that he wouldn't get caught plus if he were in an apartment it was less likely that someone would catch him in the act Terry's attacker jimmied the lock on the sliding glass door in the bedroom of her boyfriend's apartment sometime between 10.30 p.m. and 2 a.m. When Terry walked into the bedroom that night, she had nowhere to go to get away from him. The attack was brutal. He beat Terry so badly that she was not recognizable, and the coroner said that the killer continued to beat her even after she died. It is horrific what happened to all of these women but i just find it so heartbreaking that from the time terry moved to arlington she was terrified of being one of the victims of this man and she did everything that she could to not end up a victim she rearranged her work schedule she made sure that she didn't leave her house after dark unattended She didn't go grocery shopping. She didn't go to the mall. She didn't do what any other normal 20-something would do because she was terrified of being a victim. And then this horrible, horrible, awful, evil person was waiting for her in her bedroom where she should have been safe. The attack, he didn't just beat her, though. He raped her. And then he stole her engagement ring. No one saw or heard a thing, and he left the same way that he came in. A maintenance worker the next day and an exterminator found Terry around 2 30 p.m. when they came for a routine spray visit. They knocked on the door, and when no one answered, they let themselves in with the pass key. When they walked into the apartment, they thought it was a little bit odd that the TV and the stove were left on. But other than that, the living area in the kitchen looked fine. But as they moved on through the apartment, they found Terry laying on the bed in the bedroom. The killer left a drop of blood on the curtain as he left, and there was a distinct shoe print left in the dirt next to the window. Now, the shoes, even though the soles showed very little wear, they were very distinctive because they hadn't been manufactured for about five years but our person had been in jail and he was recently let out so there you go his shoes weren't used because he hadn't been out of jail to use them and now that he was back out on the streets he's murdering people there were also hairs from an african-american male left in the apartment Police checked pawn shops and diamond exchanges across the state, hoping to find a lead about Terry's engagement ring, but they turned nothing up. So even though a ring like that would bring someone a lot of money, it's thought that he kept it as a trophy. It was the first time that police had had anything to go on, and it still didn't help them. Now, there were several serial killers in the area at this time frame, but there was only one that really stood out to law enforcement. But the four serial killers that are were known at the time were Ricky Green, Juan Segundo, Lucky Odom, and Ron Trimboli. But like I said, they weren't who investigators were interested in. They were interested, in a man named Curtis Don Brown. He stood out to law enforcement, and he was even considered a person of interest. Now, Curtis Don Brown was convicted finally of killing three women. They weren't any of our victims. The ladies that he was convicted of killing were Therese Gregory, Sharon Killsback, and Jewel Wells. And he was actually caught fleeing Jewel Wells' apartment, carrying her purse, a trophy. And very, very similar to Terry McAdams' murder, he broke into her apartment. He sexually assaulted her and then he murdered her. He took a trophy and he left. He had run almost a mile by the time police caught him and he was out of breath. Curtis Don Brown was brazen. He wasn't scared about walking up and taking a woman off the street. And when that put too much heat on him, then he decided he would just break into women's apartments. That was what made him so scary amongst other things. Don't get me wrong. I mean, hello, he was a scary guy, but his brazenness alone, he wasn't worried. The three murders that Curtis Don Brown was convicted of were all very similar to the murders of our five victims. He started out by abducting women, kind of almost out of what was convenience. He saw women, they were alone and he kidnapped them and then murdered them. Just like our, like, our victims, they were all very pretty, they were well liked they were outgoing they were social and he took his opportunity when that started to come back on him then he switched and moved to breaking into apartments curtis was from texas he grew up in the fort Worth area and he began getting in trouble when he was about 13. he was involved in two different fires in his youth and fire played a big part In a lot of our murders, he likes to set stuff on fire and torch it. I'm sure part of that was because he was hoping to get rid of some of the evidence and it did work in his favor. The first fire killed his two younger brothers and severely injured his mother. But after these fires, there was, he had a lot of questionable behavior and he himself started to get into trouble with the law, and eventually spent pretty much his whole high school career in a youth facility for troubled youth. But when he got out, he returned to the area, and women began dying. The thing is, he would get sent to prison, things would calm down, he would get out. And then here we are, again, women start dying. It is believed that he possibly murdered a total of 18 women, but it couldn't be proven. Now, unfortunately, Curtis Don Brown died in prison during COVID. So they weren't, he was in prison for life for the other three murders, but investigators were hoping to get a confession out of him for these other murders for our five victims. But he died before they were able to do anything. So the hope is, is that some of this DNA can be matched to him and that he will one day also be held accountable, even though he's not alive anymore. He'll be, he'll be held responsible if not in name only for these women's murders. These women's friends and family deserve answers. They deserve some closure. Some of their loved ones died before they got any answers. And all these women deserve justice. So hopefully at some point, they will be able to use some of that DNA to pin everything on Curtis Brown like they think or find who is truly responsible. If I know I've said it on the other episodes, but if there's something that you know, any little thing, it could be totally random, you name, May think it's not important, but it could be. Sometimes it's that smallest little thing that you don't think is important, but it actually is a big piece of a puzzle. Call the Fort Worth Crime Stoppers. Tell them what you think. You never know. It could be the one little thing that cracks the case wide open. Thank you for listening today. I appreciate you guys each and every single one of you. I appreciate you listening. And I appreciate you being patient with me these past two weeks, when I have been swamped up to my eyeballs, being a one man band, the only adult in the house for a little over a week, and all the kid stuff. So I apologize. And I promise to get back on track for you guys again. But I appreciate each and every one of you. And thank you for listening. If I would love to hear comments, Thoughts, uh, new ideas for new cases. Like I told you all before, I appreciate each and every one of them. And this resulted from a listener's request. So please, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. You can find me on Facebook at Texas True Crime. Or you can always send me an email at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. And I will see you all next week, come hell or high water on time. Thanks for listening. Bye.